Well, welcome. Um, welcome to LPR's uh, reading and discussion, uh, talking about the role of small press journals in the career of the poet. We have four fantastic, engaging, lively poets for you this evening. And we also are celebrating our summer release of um, Little Patuxent Review's first unthemed uh, uh, issue. Uh, we have an excellent interview by David Byrne from The Talking Heads. We've got fantastic art from Lee Boot from UMBC. And that's on sale uh, in the back table for $10. And the poets that you're going to hear tonight as well, they will have uh, their books on sale. So welcome. I just want to say thank you so much to Enoch Pratt Library for opening their doors to this lovely room. Um, I'm always a little uh, uh, mystified when I come in this in the Poe room because no matter where you look, you're faced by Poe, except for he never seems to be looking at you. He's always sort of looking away. Um, so we've got to stare him down, right? <laughs> Um, so, you know, we, we just thank the, the, the Enoch Pratt for opening up its, its, um, its space for us and these wonderful poets. Uh, I just want to mention, too, that uh, we have a submission period at the Little Protection Review uh, opening on August 1st, so this Friday, and our theme this, this uh, cycle is food. Um, so, you know, send us all of your uh, recipes that are poems in disguise. Send us all of your essays about... Um, about anything that you love to eat, but also um, kind of more broadly on the idea of what feeds us, what sustains us, whether that's literature, um, politics, witnessing, um, and the like. Um, so feel free to treat that, that theme broadly um, and, and send us your best work. Uh, we'd love to, to hear, hear your voice. Uh, so our first poet this evening is Tafisha Edwards. Tafisha Edwards is a poet of ruthless grace whose sense of the poetic line seems rooted in vulnerability, with its dual ability to expose us and mend our wounds. Tafisha Edwards is a Guyanese and Canadian poet, a Cave Canem fellow, and graduate of the Jimenez Porter Writers House. She lives and works in Washington, D.C., and you can find her work in vinyl poetry, toe-good poetry, and stylus. And if we're lucky... She'll put a little Carmen Jones in our life during the reading. Please welcome Tafisha Edwards. Good evening. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I braved a bit of traffic coming from D.C. up to 95, which is not unusual. Um, so thank you to Stephen and the Little Patuxent Review for publishing um, poems that are very close to me. And I'll start this off with, I get sad when it rains to Common Jones. <clears throat> I get sad when it rains to Common Jones. Walk into the arms of men I do not know. Walk into the arms of men I want to know. Walk into the arms of men I know will hurt me in the best way. Slick, tongue and teeth, break, marriage, vows, way. Because I look like you, narrow-hipped wild, black-haired child, because I get sad when it rains too. So I take a train to Dallas, I take a train to Paris, I take a train to Chicago to see a lover. I meet a woman on the rails who looks like you and is not you. Brown as me, seafoam smile, salty, thick, agitated. 
I tell my lover I cannot meet him. He meets me. I tell my lover I do not love him. He loves me. I tell my lover I walked into the arms of a woman I do not know, and he walks his hand across a throat he once kissed in the dark. I think of you, Carmen Jones. Wonder who found your broken broom closet body. Wonder who will find me face down, trachea crushed like wildflowers. Um, so a bit of backstory on that poem. Uh, Dorothy Dandridge was the first black woman I had ever seen in a film that I wanted to be. And I internalized the politics of the film, as young children tend to do, with things that they see and they don't understand. And I was always struck by the idea that somehow she deserved to be strangled and ditched in a broom closet. Um, so I'm working on a series of poems about her, and we'll see where that takes us. So this next poem I wrote when I was spending a bit of time in Amherst this month. Um, I work in a, a media environment, and we have a lot of best practice documents that are sent around. So I had a bit of fun with that, and this is called Best Practices for My Currently Unconceived Daughter. Be all titty, no bra. Be an open and unfilled mouth warbling. Be flesh and salt and moist and wretched. Be lawless. Be jungle pussy, thunder tussy. Understand, desire for your dark body is desire for the dark body, the capital A. Understand that desire for your dark body is desire, is desire, is want, is unfilled need, is a grasping hand, is a scramble for land and spice and labor and capital and fuck capital. Your body is not collateral and fuck boundaries and true to size maps. They're not. And the capital A draw to size. It ain't. And contraptions like girdles, like shapewear, like band-aids that only recognize the one shade of flesh that you ain't and you ain't no mammy. You ain't nobody strong black. You ain't no three-fifths of a body. Your position ain't prone or bent or kneeling, and the view of the sky from your back is a fearsome, shivering, unconquerable blue. Uh, so I spent a bit of time in therapy, just a little. Just enough. Just not, 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 not too much. Just a, just a bit. And um, I cheated and looked at my therapist's notes on me. And this poem is based on what I found. So this is called Intake Evaluation Notes Part 1. <clears throat> Patient is reluctant to recount the past. Resists emotional engagement with memories. Here is what I remember. Sugar-coated cornflakes... Cornflake, coated jello, the essentially identical faces of my cousins, mist like cotton from a hemorrhaging cushion spread on the black forest floor. Nintendo 64, pink lotion heavy on my foster mother's knuckles, plastic runners heavy on my grandmother's carpet, the certain heaviness of balancing a body on your hips like a spinning plate, a certain stretch of 7th Street, a certain look in a man's unblinking eye, a certain dress I wear if I want that man to buy me a drink, the almost a bruised plum of that dress, the almost a plum shape for the bruises he'll leave on me, almost going to Paris, 
one miscarriage. Champagne, vodka, and gin. Dorothy, Rita, and Marilyn. The moist hand of shame stiff on my nape as if I were a girl again. As if shame were my father steering me across a crowded street and never holding my hand. Going and staying blonde. A bullet in the night followed by two more. A window burst open on a linoleum floor. A chalk line flowering in the night. A deluge of red and whirling light. We'll do that one. And I think I'll finish up with um, another poem that is in the open, um, this, this most current issue of the Little Protection Review, and a big thank you to Stephen. Um, so my father is a war veteran. Um, we have a bit of a contentious relationship. Um, that is putting it mildly. But um, one night I made my father cry. And at the time I thought it was um, a very... I thought it was an accomplishment. And as I took some time to really process what exactly had happened between us, it made me incredibly sad. Um, and so this poem is called The War Monger's Daughter, and it's for my father. My spit shined, starched, and ironed father is crying, his eyelashes thick with salt. For once his voice and mouth are soft. The day I was born, he lay on his belly in the desert, a wriggling M16 in his arms, the hot embrace of sand at his back. I imagine he might have felt pride. If he could have held me then, as if my premature body were a trigger, as if a thrown reflex could turn me into a wild and raging thing, maybe we would not be standing with words like, what will it take, and respect, and never, between us on the carpet I once vacuumed every Saturday, worn from the weight of his boots in my endless nights of pacing. How good it must feel to make a man cry, I thought, as I chased dust from room to room. What I wouldn't give to see a man combust. Now I count the interloping lines in the skin beneath my father's eyes. Understand how terrible it is to look into the closed-off, and familiar face of love. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tathisha. Um, I just am so excited about the, the diversity that we have in the room, the diversity of the poets that are in this issue, um, and just the way that those voices seem to interact with one another and create new dialogues. Ilya Kaminsky sort of talks about this in one of his anthologies about these kind of correspondence in the air that happen between poets. And I'm already feeling that uh, right, right now, so I'm, I'm excited. It is my dear pleasure to, um, uh, to welcome my, my friend Joseph Ross as the next uh, reader. Uh, and, and the Enoch Pratt welcomes you too, Joseph. <laughs> Joseph Ross's poems combine a fierce sense of witness with a priest's meditative elegance. The reader, even when confronted with Ross's exacting eye for translating the effects of injustice into the musicality of verse, is brought to a sense of wonder, or better yet, joy. Joseph Ross is the author of two poetry collections, Gospel of Dust, in Meeting Bone Man. 
recipient of three Pushcart Prize nominations and winner of the 2012 Pratt Library and LPR Poetry Prize. He teaches English at Gonzaga College High School in Washington, D.C., and writes at josephross.net. Please welcome Joseph Ross. Well, thank you very much, and thank, thanks to all of you for coming. Some friends from D.C. who are here, I'm very happy. Uh, one of my colleagues, Ed, is here. I'm glad. And I just want to say, I want to say a couple of words of thanks to Stephen. I don't think he even introduced himself at the very beginning, but Stephen Leva uh, is the new, or I guess maybe not so new, uh, editor-in-chief of Little Patuxent Review. And Stephen brings a kindness that, uh, to all of the things that he does that the world needs. And uh, I just have to say a great thanks to the Enoch Pratt uh, Library. Um, this place is amazing. When it comes to what, what you do in terms of advocacy and support for poetry, it, I just don't see it anyplace else. So I'm very grateful to you uh, for this kind of a, giving this kind of space for all of this. So I'm very happy to be here. Uh, I want to start with... Um, I want to do a, little, a couple of old poems and a couple of new poems. Some of you know, um, 2009, uh, several American fundamentalist ministers went to Uganda and uh, took a particularly sort of vicious kind of homophobia with them uh, that ended up in many gay rights activists in uh, Uganda having their faces and home addresses published on the front pages of newspapers. Uh, David Cato probably Uganda's um, most famous, most influential, well-known gay rights activist after that was brutally killed in his home. When uh, I learned about this, a few poets and I were talking about it, and uh, Melanie Henderson, a poet in Washington, D.C., some of you know, she said we should write David Cato love poems. This is for David Cato a love poem. Because my kisses are tender against your throat. Because my lips are not the steel hammer that snaps your neck in the places where God has kissed. Because my hands beg the muscles of your back, pleading and massaging what a blind man with a Bible would shove to the floor. Because your tongue slides against mine, two wet bodies inside our bodies, as close as lips, as torn skin, as flame. Because you dared to breathe air you would later gasp against my sweating chest. Our bodies lie braided in love's water. Because truth is only intimate with other truths. This love poem does not lie on the floor of your living room where you leak like a true man irrigating the Ugandan dirt with blood it does not deserve. I'm fascinated by um, choices that general sort of normal people make um, that end up really affecting things. And uh, so I can't find a poem in my own book. How does that work? There we go. <laughs> um, most of you know the story of Mamie Till, uh, sent her son from Chicago in 1955 to see relatives in Mississippi. Uh, he would be pulled out of his uncle's house in the middle of the night tortured and killed. And she had to fight with the, with the state of Mississippi just to get his body back, right? Um, 
And when she did, she was a mother. She wasn't a policymaker. She wasn't a politician. She saw how, how brutally he was killed, and she decided, let's let the coffin lid be clear. I think she said something very much like, so the world can see what they did to my boy. Well, Little Patuxent Review, I was, I'm grateful to say, a few years ago took a risk on this poem, and this was um, published in, I'm going to forget which issue, but it, they, they published it, and I'm glad for that. If Mamie Till was the mother of God. If Mamie Till was the mother of God, one of the Ten Commandments would forbid whistling. No one would wear cotton clothing. Every cotton field would be burned in praise of 14-year-old boys and their teeth. If Mamie Till was the mother of God, every river would be still. Nothing thrown in could travel downstream. Barbed wire could only be worn as a necklace by senators. If Mamie Till were the mother of God, every coffin lid would be glass. So even God could see how baptisms are done in Mississippi. Exploring uh, Mamie Till's choice, uh, I found somebody else who made some remarkable choices, a man named Willie Lewis, an 18-year-old man in Money, Mississippi, uh, who heard the murder going on in a barn, saw the truck, saw one of the men. Uh, He ended up testifying against the two men who killed Emmett Till uh, and then had to move to Chicago, had to change his name, had to have police protection. Of course, his whole life was changed. So, uh, and this was an 18-year-old kid. You know, this was not the kind of person we think sort of stands up with great courage, but he did. So when your word is a match. For Willie Lewis, 1937-2013. When you walk past Klansmen smiling at you on your way into the courthouse, wondering how you will ever live here after this airless day, when you tell the story of a pickup truck, a barn, a boy, a threat, when you point at two men in the courtroom and everyone gasps at what they have never seen before but know is true, when your word is a matchhead hissing into flame, testifying aloud but blown out as soon as you speak, when all the air in the courtroom shakes its white head, when the smiling men brag about killing the boy in the barn, when they joke about a river, about what cannot float, when you flee to the mother's city to breathe air that isn't a gasp, when you hide the name your parents gave you for fear the men from that barn will come smiling for you too, when you speak to your wife years later after a lifetime of breathing beside her, when this air thick as lead presses your chest to breaking, when the match's flame consumes all the air, revealing a coffin, a boy, a mother, and you burning. I've been uh, haunted this summer by um, the stories of children crossing Mexico and crossing the southern border and haunted also in a different way, I suppose, by some of the American reaction to those children. Uh, One of them's name is Gilberto Ramos, and this poem tries to tell his story. For Gilberto Ramos, a 15-year-old Guatemalan boy died in the Texas desert, June 2014. Before you left, your mother draped you with 50 Hail Marys, a rosary of white wood, a constellation she hoped might guide you. But Texas does not know these prayers. 
It knows that desert air is thirsty and you are made of water. It drank you slowly. Your name only linked to your body by the string of aves still around your neck, the small cross pressing against your wooden skin the color of another cross. You left home on May 17th with one change of clothes and two countries ahead of you. Your brother's phone number hidden on the back of your belt buckle so the coyote couldn't find it. The coyotes pray in the language of extortion. The phone number was eventually found by a Texas official whose name your brother couldn't remember. She called and spoke in the language of bones. He translated her news into pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. His prayer meant brother, a word he kept moist just beneath his tongue. Let me finish with... um, Two other new, two newer poems. Let me, let me break out all persona poem on you. How's that? Nelson Mandela speaks to Trayvon Martin. I walked down, Joh- down Fox Street in Johannesburg at dawn. A light rain darkens my shoes. They scrape against the small stones. I'm standing in the doorway when I see you, across the street, on the corner, looking at me. You wear no hood today. You smile and walk toward me. I smile and wait for you. The day begins here. Coffee and tea stands push back their canvas covers. A whistle sings from the train stations. Your arms swing at your sides like only a teenage boy's arms can swing. You look like you might open your mouth to sing. There is no SUV in sight. I am not sure how to greet you. So I look at your wet, grass-stained shoes, then back at your 17-year-old face. I say, come in, out of the rain. And continuing sort of that story, let me finish with George Zimmerman's options. February 26, 2012. Look at the rain from the kitchen window. Think about staying inside. Return to the couch in front of the television. Marvel at Dwayne Wade's perfect follow-through. Listen to your mother's footsteps upstairs. Consider taking a ride around the neighborhood. Consider not. Back out of the driveway slowly. Hope there's not a bike on the sidewalk behind you. Wonder why you didn't check. Smile to yourself for stopping fully at each stop sign. Round corners slowly. Ask yourself why anyone would be walking in this weather. Notice the pulse of the windshield wipers. Muse that it sounds peaceful to you. Watch the hooded person on the sidewalk in the next block. Slow down your car. Feel your annoyance at today's teenagers. Smile at how foolish that annoyance seems in the rain. Decide to pull up next to this person. Pull up next to this person. 
realize he is a teenage boy. Pull forward as you notice he does not stop walking. Decide to roll down your window. Roll down your window. Look carefully through the rain as he turns to face you. Decide to ask him if he needs a ride. Ask. Thank you so much, Joseph. Our next reader is Mike Brokus. I promised him I wouldn't mess up his last name, which uh, I may do in this intro again. Um, Mike Brokus is a poet who knows how to take risks with the most quotidian aspects of life. Managing to bend the reader's ear um, to the poet's concerns without elevating the language to the point of insincerity. In the way that Emily Dickinson suggests, he tells the truth, but tells it slant. Michael Brokus received his MFA from Boston University, recipient of a Bakeless Fellowship from Breadloaf Writers' Conference and the Carmaggio Foundation. His poetry appears in Hobart, Salamander, Sixfold, and other journals. Please welcome Mike Brokus. Thanks. Thanks, everyone, for coming out. Um, this is a really cool event already. It's bound to continue to be so. Um, and yeah, thanks to Stephen and the Little Patuxent Review for um, having a wonderful journal and publishing great work and having events like this one. I'm going to start with a poem that's called Waiting. <clears throat> Julia's mom, who hasn't seen me in several years, keeps telling me, gripping her wine glass, that I don't look the way I'm supposed to. It has finished raining. From the back porch, the sky's hinting like the sun might reemerge. She sits down on a wet deck chair in her sweatpants, swears, goes inside to change, comes back out and makes the same mistake. So people behave in temporary ways that contradict over the long term. Am I just now understanding this? I'd be flying between skyscrapers if I were Lou Reed, or Saul Bellow, but for now, Julia and I go out to an unpopular club where I keep feeling like my skull's mobilizing itself against my head, but becoming entrenched the more it tries to escape. The lead singer in one song sings, I don't mind waiting, stretching out the first syllable of waiting, and I think that's just right, but for every decent song, we stand through six or seven that make no impression. This next poem is um, inspired by uh, Cesar Vallejo, who is this fantastic uh, Peruvian poet um, uh, around the 1930s, I think. Um, Singing Stone, after Cesar Vallejo. Oh, there's one note I should, one thing I should note is that a corekenque is a uh, native South American word. It's like a type of falcon. Singing Stone. My cigarette proves suitable, as I too am burning to a stub. How dizzying, how carcinogenic to wield the world between my own fingers, my own star going down in smoke for a few moments, until the ember begins to flicker and the world takes its last drag, 
stooping down to put me out in an empty furrow. Lying in an open grave, through the abiding, abiding veins of light, I can see my backstory, my body carried away in a trade wind racing across blotted out mountains made of stars that Paris keeps turning towards itself. Stars that turn over thousands of times more of their own accord in the Andes, Trujillo, Santiago de Chuco, caves collapsing and my villagers' bones asleep in their red hats. Downpour de descends on me as forecasted, my voice dry from trying to greet the raw and forgotten in music, not precisely music, only the ashy expectorations of panpipes and korakenkes. Um, for better or worse, and I don't know if this is the best introduction to a poem, but I write a lot of poems about boredom. Not not all my poems are about being bored, but I think some of them are. Um, this is called Landscape Without Rest. I step aside as a boy pedals fast downhill, our path blazed by cedar chips, his father ambling at the crest, and fret against the grip of my own vectors, the straight lines, strict dimensions, Days that race by too easily for the neighbors, too scrutinized for me. But don't we make a fine match, strike a spry note of exchange? Don't we light a fused flame, how they keep the tires of their bicycles inflated, and how no one ever showed me how to ride, and the way these widening lanes make way for flashes of rubber, flares of cottonwood leaves? And this is a poem, um, it's called Listening to Nick Drake, um, but it's about a couple of um, uh, relevant obsessions of mine, which are music and baseball. Ordinary obsessions. Listening to Nick Drake. Acoustic music so sad, most of the time it doesn't need to be any good, but your music isn't strictly acoustic, seamlessly integrating strings across albums. And besides, your music is good. Still, it is sad, sadder than a baseball game, almost as sad as a full season. I hate seeing young pitchers get ahead in the count 0-2, then give up a home run. You're ahead of the hitter. You're beating him. He needs to protect the plate and his at-bat, throw something outside the zone, something he can't possibly hit. Think how afraid he must be of you. I could never be a manager. It is so sad to lose, so sad to yell at someone. Some photographs of you. You hold a cello, looking sad. You try to scowl or look tough, but you look sad or intimidated. I can't imagine being afraid to say anything at all, especially after taking plenty of pills. Every spring you read about a prospect who will dominate major league hitters as soon as his team calls him up. But sometimes he just settles in at around league average or injures his arm, or there's no real injury. He just generally fades out altogether. <clears throat> uh, this next poem is one of the ones that's in the most recent issue of Little Patuxent Review. Uh, it's about a camping trip, and it's called The Rocks. Somehow we avoided puncturing a tire, arriving after dark, rushing to drive the stakes of our borrowed tent into mud puddling with rainwater, thick with rocks left by receding glaciers centuries before. Somehow we settled in and slept. At dawn, 
I stepped out into humid air, retrieved the French press that had been steeping coffee overnight, filtered and poured, an echo of the waterfall over the boulders that moonlight makes blue that give the campground its name. You came out and kissed me. I handed you your mug full of ice. The tarp had held out overnight against the rain. My hands were shaking with the flow of things. Um, This poem is called Days, um, and that's D-A-Y-S. I've had the question before. Someone thought it was D-A-Z-E. Days. Peasant pleasantries I have been heaping in piles like leaves. Perches and chirps of far-flung birds I have been searching for something uncertain, unbeaked, something without teeth, with nothing to chew. I can't stomach that any longer, unnerved, at flights I might have taken, but curbed. I can't believe that worked. Days like blinking lights motioning nowhere, scatter and burn out. Sepulcher in lackluster, long spilled leaves. Now days are for undizzying myself from the way trees and hills get loud with freezing rain that's barely coming down. Uh, this is another poem that's also that's in that's in Little Protuxent Review. Um, it's called The Indiscernible, and it's after a painting by Van Gogh called View of the Roofs of Paris. It must be miles and miles off. Above the roofs of the city, it only trespasses at the clouds' behest in grotesque shapes. False promise of a hidden alley or valley materializing to make a way across the useless chimneys. To try to run along it would be to fall beneath it, into its absence, which is everywhere. Even the trees occlude the view, fastened to the foreground, swelling out. They don't allow, in their density, any sway. Decay of walls and angles, residences indiscernible from ruins, it won't come near them. Whether in September they had it and they let it slide away, or whether it got redirected by a bearing beyond control, it didn't have to be this way. It doesn't have to be. The light, I mean. First light. I'm all odds, no ends, approaching the stone of your front steps, June leaves at rest, some far-off carburetor stirring, Malbec, silk dress, light freckled shoulders to kiss, the measured, the throttled thrill of sleeping little. No nightmares, no dreams. I've spent so much time being careful, but daylight's tiptoeing through your kitchen now, this faintest trace of morning we could tear in two or turn our eyes away from for half a second and rest the light out of the room. These few familiar streets we don't dare leave. Okay, and I'll read two more. Um, This one is sort of a a persona poem. Um, And I think it's appropriate for this event because it's sort of about the anxiety of trying to get good at something, I think. Um, The anxiety and complications and the details and the happiness maybe as well. Oboe read. Only the player herself can make me 
no matter how prominent she becomes, who studies her, who she employs to ease other facets of her work, it will still need to be she who runs her hands along tubes of cane, splits them in segments with one type of knife, and scrapes them down with another, who persists every day in folding over, soaking, scoring the raw material of me until I fit the fullness of her embouchure, her breathing through a clear column of air that is also unclear, say smooth but still producing vibration, as I am assembled to rattle, to add distance or color, whichever imprecise metaphor you prefer, to sound, so in my most preferable, my most alchemical construction, I quiver freely against myself and the upper joint of the pipe in such a manner that my usefulness uses me up. So she will need to make more of me the more brilliantly she plays, publicly or otherwise. And so she saves her finest double reads for performances in which reception and applause are considerations. And yet, I cannot be stored too long in her drawer, her closet. I am not something bottled. I have no chemicals. The weather not only erodes my composure as quickly as bamboo grows, but in ways depending on atmospheric conditions, places criteria on my composition, my very heft in practice and performance, summer trilling in its vernacular for a thinner, pared-down pitch, fall a meadowy, conical faith, to match perhaps the method of the trees, the wind to behave against the bare weeds of winter, pleading that she scrape and shape me most minimally, adhering to the nakedness of the weather's anticipation of boisterousness or virtuosity of moisture, which makes even the bassoon, even the sordoon-like birds migrate to survive, at least without spring, when I must gather form not too heterophonic for the moan of God, must shred myself of any summer in color, must loop my branches to assume the bore foremost in spring, of knowing not to overblow until it's not too late like flowers and beeswax, a ploy for the higher harmonics, and unlike God or she, no difference to me, and neither is for that matter the oboe, for whither do I in humidity especially, but every something else as well, but two parentheses with nothing to see inside, waiting to scour emptiness into applause of actual song. My song, which is my form, wavers and strays. <clears throat> Oof, that poem's a mouthful. It's just two long sentences. So it's, always a, it's always a struggle to, <laughs> to figure out how to breathe. Um, and I'll end with a, a Baltimore poem. Um, it's called Spillover. You do not mind not knowing if the moan you heard just now, beneath the low whistle shifting through the air, was a dog whimpering through one wall or child crying through the other or your own floor giving away its age. As a pumpkin, flattened and warped in a square plot of garden, all there's room for between sidewalk and street, lifts and tumbles out of sight. From your bedroom, your candle keeps its low flicker. The fluidness that finds its way to dreams arranges waking life when it gets cold, when wind pulls this hard through the streets, the seams of restaurants and row houses, with nowhere to be released. You don't let the shrieks of cars sliding by rot in your mind so much as wash over you. Along these densely lit alley streets, there must be at least a few lights that never turn off.
Thanks so much, Mike. Our last reader is Alan King. Um, I, I, I had the pleasure of meeting Alan for the first time this summer at the Kaveh Kahnem retreat. And I, I might best describe Alan King's poetry as a smooth tour de force, <laughs> guiding the reader through elation and agony on multiple registers, while always crafting fine music in the lines. Sometimes the context is childhood misadventures. Sometimes the context is Tim Siebel's schooling Quasimodo. What is consistent is King's low baritone of praise and his unshakable, seemingly unshakable, belief in poetry's ability to transform. Alan King's poems renew the language. They make us new. Poet, journalist, and blogger, Alan King earned his MFA from the Stone Coast program and is a Cave Canem Fellow, recipient of the Best City Poem of 2006, uh, prize from Third Muses, and two-time Pushcart nominee. King's poetry has been published in numerous journals. His debut collection, Drift, was published in 2012 and is on sale in the back. Please welcome Alan King. Okay, so I, I got five poems I got to try to get through, so I'm just going to do a quick note of thanks to uh, Stephen Leva and uh, Little Patuxent Review. Uh, I also want to thank um, Enoch Pratt Library for opening this beautiful space, and thank you to you all for coming. Uh, the first poem I'm going to jump into is The Champ, and that was, um, that's published in Little Patuxent Review's Social Justice Issue. And it's for uh, my brother Andrew and uh, our niece Anisha. And she was a year old at the time when I wrote this. Uh, so she's four now. The champ. My sister's daughter says Obu instead of uncle and says my brother's name first. Obu Drew, Obu Drew. And the look she gives me when I try to get her to say Obu Al is the silver screen after theater lights are back on. I'm a sad production assistant at a premiere looking for my name in the credits long after the crowd has left the lobby. And something I hadn't seen since we were kids sweeps across my brother's face the way it did when he took the steering wheel as the daredevil stuntman in the action flick called Those Teenage Years. I remember that Christmas Eve his car leaped from the beltway through a column of trees. That night, I waited to bail him out after an officer found him drunk in his battered coupe. He quit school for the Air Force, and I could still hear Dad yelling, I didn't bring you into this world to be a pawn on a battlefield. Mom shook her head, wondering what he had to prove. I couldn't understand why my brother's taekwondo trophies and black belt weren't enough. But now I know we're always given a chance to do something brave, even if it means him whisking our terrified niece out the way of the villainous vacuum cleaner. Now Anisha's laughing and clapping for her uncle who's won the Oscar 
of her affection. She's chanting, Obudru, Obudru. Right, so the uh, next poem, um, it's about, a, you know, before I met my wife, um, you know, the whole dating thing, you know, I had a lot of moments where I felt like Quasimodo. I was going through my little Quasimodo moment, and I say that because if you know the story of Quasimodo, it's, it's a story of unrequited love. And so no matter how much he loved Esmeralda, she could never give him back um, the kind of love that he had for her. And so uh, this is uh, Quasimodo in New York City. Winter yanks her breezy hymn over New York City. I beat the streets like a madman haunted by what rattles in his head. I'm a man shaken by a gypsy woman's loud no when she snatches her hand from his. I'm a man leaving what he desires at a hotel in Times Square. And I might be scary the way insecurities surface like warts. The way passers-by stare at the shame that hunches my spine. Maybe what I need is a poem as pretty as Esmeralda, but one willing to hold the head of something ugly and kiss it beautiful. So I didn't want to leave Quasimodo hanging and so I figured Quasimodo needed a pep talk, and who better to give him a pep talk than Tim Siebel's? <laughs> and so for those who don't know, you know, Tim Siebel's, you know, lots of awards, very humble dude, talent through the sky, and he's very much, he's still very much kind of like 70s, you know. I think when I uh, got married, I said, yo, Tim, I got married. He was like, right on, right on. <laughs> So this is Tim Siebel's School's Quasimodo, or know what I'm saying? Come on, bro. Gonna be soggy as old sneaks. Got some woman you wanted? Shrieked as if you were straight out of a Hitchcock flick? Gonna dye your warts blue for a pity party when the muse is ever present? Rejection's a turnstile. Think you're the first to go through one? Think you're the first brother to hurt over a woman? To scream your pain from life's bell towers? You're not in Paris anymore. And how could that gypsy woman not see your heart as big as Notre Dame? That it rings loud like bells tolling each hour. You're at the Bowery now. Whole lot of tongue tying to be had in here, my man. Get a load of that one at the bar. Can Esmeralda spill into a dress the way that poem spills her sexy syllables and side sequence stanzas? Tell me she ain't a riddle you busting your brain to solve. If I was you, home slice, I forget that silly gypsy woman. Try to get up in some wordplay. I'm just saying. Thank you. So the next poem, I got two more. The next poem is Conundrum, and it's, um, say, circa 2007. That's when I wrote the piece. The actual poem happens a decade before that. And it's a point in time when my brother and I thought we had mastered the art of being cool. You know, we had a little pamphlet we were going to put together so everybody else could 
ride along with us and you know didn't my dad who was actually cool was heartbroken when he overheard that conversation <laughs> so this is you know about that time uh 97 so this is um but it's circa 2007 i wrote it then so it's conundrum circa 2007 a decade before my brother and I were strapped inside the leather belly of an Oldsmobile 88 that roared like something feral, with speakers coughing up bass and spitting rhymes from Buster's first album. I don't recall where we were headed, just that we cruised the city with our fresh haircuts and fragrant whispers of Egyptian musk behind our ears. We thought the secret was in scented oils or the abracadabra of a barber's clippers reducing stubborn curls to rows of waves. What we would have given for the answer to the riddles of women, the open says a me to a hidden door in the wall they might have erected for trespassers. And wasn't it deeper than what our father called a lack of game? When science defined pheromones as nature's airborne love potion, that decade, we rode with the windows down, the breeze, a cool tongue lapping at our sweaty foreheads, both of us wondering what the recipe was. Okay, and this last poem is for our nephew, my wife's here, our nephew Taib, and so it's a... Uh, um, Self-explanatory, it's a striptease for Taib. Watching the cameras at Target, security guards rush our nephew as he leaves the register before they lug him to a back room. They mistake him for a thief returning stolen clothes for cash. Never mind the blouse he brought back was his mom's, that she couldn't find the receipt, and the worst she thought would happen was a cashier saying, please come back when you find it. But they're holding him for us to take home. The store closes in 20 minutes, then he'll be cuffed and bounced to a detention center. He tells us this through my wife's cell phone that rang while we were cruising to a dim restaurant where curry and basmati rice fly their fragrant kites. Our tongues tingled thinking of vegetable samosas, pyramids of peas and potatoes and fried dough drizzled with tamarind chutney and cilantro sauce. But the appetites vanish in the U-turn. We get there to hear the chief of security what kind of mother gets a son mixed up in her drama? I want to punch this black man, but the badges and guns say it's a bad idea. Our nephew flinches at every heavy eye, thinking they know his type. As if his story wasn't tied to that boy, 20 years before, browsing a store aisle, sporting his t-shirt and jeans he bought the week before. The one security thought he stole before they ripped them off him. I'm sick of the strip tease. We're forced to perform. When authority smacks us back in line for thinking, we're like everyone else. I'm sick of the obsession with dark skin, the desire to see it locked down or scoring endorsements. Our nephew knows at 17 and 6 feet, he'll always fit the description. That his skin will justify random traffic stops, badges cuffing him, slamming his head into car hoods. That same skin says the incident at Target 
is them popping his cherry. Thank you. I think we just need to give another hand clap for all those wonderful poets. One of the reasons that I enjoy going to a poetry reading is it serves as a kind of alarm clock for my imagination, saying, wake up, wake up, imagination. And when my imagination is awake, I write with more clarity, I live more fully, and I generally treat people in a more pleasant manner which my son takes advantage of by asking for candy and time to play Xbox. Uh, so I'm, I'm thrilled to uh, kind of move into our discussion portion of, of uh, the event and invite all the uh, poets to come and join me at a panel. And we're going to talk about the role of the small press or the role of, of small journals in the career of the poet. And I, I hope you'll, you'll enjoy the conversation and, and participate in, a, in the Q&A that, that follows our discussion. So poets, if you would come up, we'll, we'll get started. Um, and I'm just going to be leading uh, with a few guiding questions and really allowing the, the poets to, to take the lead on, on discussing how small presses and small journals have influenced their careers. So the first thing I'd, I'd like each of you to, to think about uh, and, and answer is what is your process for selecting which journals to submit to? What kinds of things do you consider? Uh, do personal relationships matter? Does size of the audience matter? Diversity of authors and poets published there? Is it print or online? If you could just talk about your process for how you select journals. I suppose I'll go first. Um, actually, the most important part of the process is determining whether the poems themselves are finished. Mm -hmm. I think um, sometimes we get caught in a, in, a, in a need to publish and our work might not be attended carefully to. So really understanding that the work is finished and being at peace with it um, so that if the work is not accepted into a journal, you're not in a tailspin of, um, of second-guessing the, the strength of it. Um, sometimes it's a bit of a numbers game, depending on the submission season or um, other priorities of presses that you submit to. So it's not always necessarily about the poem. So that's the first part of the process for me. Am I, am I done? Are these ready to be submitted? Um, if they're rejected, am I going to be okay with that? Is that going to send me into a corner? <laughs> Okay, well, um, chime in. Um, I know a while back uh, there used to be this, um, well, I think it's still there, but they charge now, so I stopped using them, but it was duotrope.com. <laughs> and so it was, uh, it was cool because it um, was a network of, like, thousands of journals. And through that I found out about journals I may not have considered sending to. And, um, you know, I remember you know, trying to go through, like, the whole... Well, you can, you can, you can filter out um, which journals you want to send to, like, journals that are themed or whatever. But once I had my list, I remember going through and actually reading the work in the journals. And if I didn't like the work in the journal, I didn't um, submit to that journal. And, and um, you know, my, my thing was, um, you know, I, I wanted to... 
you know, su- um, submit my work to places that uh, that I respected. You know, I wanted to submit to journals that, you know, I could say that I read and, you know, just not have my work in a journal. I'm like, all right, this is cool. And it never, you know, really keep up with the issues on that. Um, and uh, for me, the size of the journal doesn't matter. I mean, I think uh, the best thing a journal could do is um, get your work you know, help you carry your work farther than you can carry it because they have their, they have an audience that um, your work is introduced to. So, um, yeah, I mean, that was my um, process at one point. And then I know um, Allison Joseph, she has that listserv. And um, so, yeah, what, I was gonna mention that. <laughs> so when somebody <laughs> told me about resources. that, you know, they're like, why are you doing all this searching? They said, why don't you just let it come to your inbox? So <laughs> that's pretty much the process now. Yeah, duotrope.com is a, is a website that charges for the, uh, in my mind, something that's not quite as valuable as this, um, the, this group that Alice and Joseph, it's a Yahoo group. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone should join it. It's free. It's to just get emails about almost every writing opportunity that's out there. Um, I think it's uh, creative writing opportunities list. If you Google that, mm-hmm. it's a Yahoo group. You'll you'll find it. Um, but yeah, that's a phenomenal resource. I found a lot of uh, a lot of opportunities there. Um, another thing I do is I just list. You know, I, I keep in mind every almost every journal I hear anybody say anything about. You know, it's there's too many journals to read everyone thoroughly. Um, but if you hear about a journal that people who you respect uh, like, um, and you hear about that journal from a bunch of people you respect and like, um, then that's one that's worth reading and seeing if uh, if you like it too. Um, what else was I going to say? Oh, I was going to say also that um, if you read a book of poetry you like, or if you read a poem in a journal that you like, you can always flip to the acknowledgement section in that book and see where that writer has published their poems. Um, I found out about a lot of really great journals that I might not have heard about, um, you know, until later, um, just by. It's by seeing where writers I like are publishing work. I think um, I agree with what everybody has said. I think the only thing I would add um, uh, in terms of sort of trying to decide where to send things, um, I I guess let me underline first what Alan said. I think think finding uh, journals that have included poems that have meant something to me, that that seems smart to me. I mean... if, if they're if they're publishing poems that I like, then they're also going to like mine, perhaps. Um, the only other thing I think sometimes, sort of geographically, if I've if I've gone someplace for a reading, or I know I'm going to go someplace for a reading, does it make sense to try to um, send something to a journal that might be rooted in that area? I think I, I'm almost certain I stole that idea was told to me by Ethelbert Miller. I think he said he's always thinking communities, of course, right. Uh, this de- kind of the dean of uh, who I think of as sort of the dean of DC poets, but he's always talking about you know build 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 on something. So if you're going someplace to read, what are a couple of the journals that that are there? Or if you've been someplace to read, what are a couple of the journals that are there that might help to build uh, for for folks to build uh, to get to know your your work better? Um, yeah, I guess the, I'm not sure I have anything other earth shattering. And do you guys have any preference for print or online? I'll, I'll jump in right here first. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, um, I really have a preference for print, um, and I don't know if that's my age or uh, or my distrust of the world or something. But uh, I mean, I certainly have have published in online journals, and I still send things to online journals. 
But if I have to lean one way or the other, I'm sure I lean toward print. It, it, it feels more permanent, though it, maybe it isn't actually. That may be unscientific. Uh, it, it feels like people have taken more care, I think, uh, when they're with a print journal. You know, the beautiful thing about the Internet is that anybody can put something on there, and the miserable thing about the Internet is that anybody can put something on there. Uh, so, but print journals generally, I think, I feel like there's a little more care tended or something. Yeah, you know, I have my foot in, like, both because I can see the benefits of doing both. Like, uh, for print, there is that satisfaction of knowing you're going to get a complimentary copy in the mail and you get to hold it. And, you know, so that's cool. But on the other side of it is, um, you know, when a journal's online, you know, your work has access that um, the print journal doesn't really have because the print journal can't be everywhere, but online it is. And so... It, um, I don't know if the, you know, if the audience is bigger because that depends on the, um, the publishers and their network of people. But I think it's, um, I like it because if, it, you know, if you got something published and you have family that's online, you can just shoot them a quick link and they could see it right away versus having to wait till I get there to see it in the um, print version. But at the same time, too, I do like holding it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's. I, I think I would sum it up in a really similar way. Um, uh, I I don't have a Kindle. I love physical books. Um, I like subscribing to journals. I like having a shelf full of issues of journals. Um, and I you know I like to submit because I you know I want want to be on that shelf as well. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean just like uh, being able to you know see a friend published a poem online and then you can click a link and read it instead of waiting for that issue to come out. Um, uh, that's really valuable too. So I, I submit to both. I submit to both. I've had uh, friends and peers and people I've met ask me if I'm published, and if I can't produce a physical copy, they say, "Oh," and they, they look kind of sad, <laughs> like it doesn't count. So um, there's definitely uh, whether it's um, fostered by the writer writing community or the actuality of having a physical copy, it makes it more legitimate. But um, I've seen my poems on Tumblr, on other people's Tumblrs, because um, they've been published in online, in online spaces. Um, I've seen my, my own Google search results, and, and there they are. Um, and so I think that the point about having access to the work on the internet is, is wonderful. Um, but that's all dependent on the reach of the journal and how they publish it. So if we could do both, I think that would be the best, that would, that would be the best answer to this. <laughs> Um, I, I was thinking uh, just this week about, uh, I don't know how many of you teach, but if someone Googled my name, do I want the first thing they see to be ratemyprofessor.com or my poetry? <laughs> um, so I, I'd like you guys to talk a little bit about or, or kind of consider the, the role that small presses and small journals really play in the career of the poet. Um, this panel has a, a diverse group of, um, of poets at different moments in your career, um, and and I just, uh, I wonder if you could expound on uh, whether or not, you know, it's just a stepping stone. Um, you know, do people have a different relationship with small press presses and small journals? Um, you know, what do you think is uh, a small journal's role in the career of the poet? I would, I would say, um, I guess I, I certainly don't like the idea of, thinking about some publication as being a stepping stone, but I think it's because I don't, I don't think much and I don't 
I don't think much in terms of quantity, and I don't think much in terms of quality of uh, the idea of career. Um, I mean, I guess, you know, I, we want our work to get out. I want my work to get out. I want Tafisha's work to get out. Uh, that's, and I, if that's what career means, I, I guess that it, sounds, it feels a little crass sometimes. But I think that what, in my experience at least, um, I was thinking about Little Patuxent Review. Um, they have, Little Patuxent Review has introduced me to a, a two or three, four different communities that I personally, and my work probably otherwise, in the same way, would not have reached. Um, Little Patuxent Review connected me to the Pratt, where I, I think I've been able to read three times, and this is a wonderful community here. Introduced me to Hoko Polizzo, uh, and I had a chance to do a couple of things with them, uh, as well as just the uh, some of the indi- to you, you know, as well as some of the just some of the individuals that are connected to it, Laura Chauvin and others. Um, that's a terrific thing. I, I don't know that some of the uh, what to call them uh, other than like the national publications. I, maybe that's mm-hmm. is that the way to say it. I don't want to say. I'm trying not to say top tier. Mm-hmm. Some, <laughs> someone said to me at one point, and I thought. Right, I can count on one hand the number of poems I've ever liked in the New Yorker, so I'm, just, mm. I'm not going to call that top tier. Mm. I don't know what it is, and that's all. Pre- that's all preference. And that's all it is. But um, yeah, so they introduce people to other communities, and that's a um, that's a really good thing. When my when if Mamie Till was the mother of God was chosen to be in uh, was chosen by Little Puxent Review, maybe I, I didn't do what Tafisha said. I wasn't sure that poem was finished. And or there was something that was that was a concern to me, and so I got a hold of Laura right away, and and we were able to talk something through about that poem, and it stayed the way it was. Um, you know, I'm not sure if a national publication if that would have been possible, um, mm-hmm. but the most important thing, nonetheless, is this that a publication where they take themselves seriously, and LPR does, um, in a good way, it introduces you to a community, and that's always that's that's the blessing, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, you know when I I don't like to think of the um, the sm- the small press journals as stepping stones. Uh, I mean the the best analogy for me is um, I think about like the hip hop compilations that go that come out, and the reason why I say that is because um, you know in these compilations you'll have up and coming MCs with established MCs, and so if you're on a compilation with LL Cool J or whatever. LL's fans are going to buy the compilation because he's on it, and then they're going to be exposed to you as a result of purchasing it. And so I think in a lot of ways, like, um, you know, I've had poems published in um, journals, and then Terrence Hayes would be in the journal, and so it was like, oh, okay, cool, because, you know, your, you know, your work is going to have some chance of uh, being seen, um, you know, by his audience or, who, you know, whoever's established in the journal. Uh, but I've you know, just from um, personal experience, I've had um, more opportunities come because of small um, press journals. Like, I th- uh, you know, one time I'd gotten published in um, the Indiana Review, and it was great for everybody to say, oh, you know, I saw your piece. It was great, but that's all it was. It was just like, it was cool, um, you know. And then I had a piece published in another journal, and, you know, it was a uh, free state. And so, um, and that got me like three readings and introduced me to a you know a group of writers living in Baltimore so you know I don't yeah I think um the small press journals are just as valuable as the as as the um you know the I don't want to say mainstream 
national or something. National. The bigger ones. Yeah, but I, I want to also tell this story. Like, I, I was uh, there was a writer that wrote an, uh, an essay in um, the Writer Magazine, and he, two journalists had selected his short story. And one journal was a uh, lesser-known journal. The other was, like, this major journal that he wanted to get published in. But the smaller journal had uh, responded to him sooner. And so he had gotten on the phone with his friends and was like, you know, which one should I choose? Should I go with the, the smaller one or should I go with the big one? So the friend said, well, if they responded to you first, you got to be fair. So he kicked himself, he screamed, and he finally told the major journal that the work was taken. Well, because his work got published in a smaller journal, he didn't think much of it, but another journal saw his work in there, republished it, and then that short story led to him selling uh, um, the movie rights to it just because of that. So it's one of those unexpected opportunities that small press journals present you. Yeah, may that happen to every writer, right? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I would, I would agree. I think that um, I certainly don't consider small, smaller press journals a, a stepping stone. I think the community itself is what's inherently valuable and that, you know, the accolades and, like, the name, uh, the name brand or name, name check recognition is, is not nearly as important. Um, just, you know, being able to go to readings like this one and hear other people read fiction and poetry and nonfiction. Um, and, yeah, and you were talking also about... Um, how smaller journals have a, you know, you have a more intimate relationship where they, editors can take a little bit more time um, with work. So I've had editors of smaller journals, even if they reject my, my poem or poems, um, they'll we'll have a nice note, like, please submit again, we like this poem, etc. It's un, unlikely or, that you're going to get that from a bigger one. And I've even had editors who have accepted a poem um, tell me that we'll publish this poem as it is, but I have this suggestion as to how you can format it a little bit differently or, you know, make the stanzas uh, a little different or, um, you know, I've had editors make small suggestions that I, um, that were not contingent upon the publication, they would have published it no matter what, um, but that were really helpful and that I agreed with and I thought that was really cool that, um, you know, that the editor took that much time to consider the work not only, uh, you know, on its, not only as a finished thing but as, you know, something that they could suggest, um, an improvement to. So I think that's um, that's something you get with a, um, a smaller journal, too. Oh, and I also wanted to say that um, just the process of uh, you know finding out all, all about the thousands of different really wonderful smaller journals and realizing how many people there are uh, you know working as hard as you are and submitting all the time and how many editors there are who work really hard, thanklessly choosing stuff and having to write rejection letters for the stuff that they don't choose. I think that that whole process is part of the community for me, too, and has really um, been part of my education. So I have to say I agree with um, everyone so far. Um, I think to chase what you think is prestige in a, in a national journal can be a very empty journey, um, particularly when you get your work rejected and you realize who else is submitting, and you know there may be some politics that goes along with who gets accepted to what, um, as I've you know heard horror stories about work that is deserving that hasn't gotten selected for whatever reason. That's like a whole other thing. Um, and I think that smaller journals can be invested in poets who are in the beginning or middle or other stages of their career in a way that um, is very uh, rewarding and can have a lot of benefit uh, 
for, for poets. And there's something very affirming of getting not only an acceptance into a journal, but opportunities to read, um, opportunities to sit on panels, um, and, and really forming a dialogue with the staff, and really knowing that they're taking the time to really delve into your work and understand your voice, um, which can be, you know, it, it can really be a make or break sort of um, process. Do you think that there's an anxiety that because it's a small journal or a small website that it may not last, it may disappear, and then what's the relationship of your work to the world? It's published, so you can't put it somewhere else, but now is unviewable. I've seen print publications fold. They, they, they fold, too, all of the time. The, the overhead cost of printing is not to be um, understated. Um, I think... And keeping that in mind, I think that, that you kind of, it shouldn't be something that's lingering overhead of the process. If, it, if the journal should fold, I just say, you know, take a screenshot. <laughs> um, um, you know, Kickstarter didn't happen. Let people know that, you know, you were submitted, um, you submitted to this journal and were accepted. And I think that if you were to resubmit work and you, let the staff of the journal know they would be pretty understanding. But I know plenty of journals that have gone under, mm -hmm. and that's just the nature, that's the economics of uh, the, the, the world of literary journals. Yeah, plus, I mean, you know, for me, like, I always think of journals as like this institution. So, you know, especially in D.C., we have a lot of institutions that were once around and that are no longer there. But the people who were a part of that during that time have those stories that they share. And so I kind of view the, you know, like the journals that go out of print, you know, if, if, you know, if my work is in a journal that's out of print, I can still reminisce on like the other, you know, the great work that was published in that journal and, you know, how, you know, how happy I was to be a part of that. So. I think um, one of the things that I was curious about, uh, which Joseph touched on a little bit already, um, are the different communities that um, uh, that you may have been introduced to. And you guys have talked about that uh, quite a bit. Um, but I also was wondering if you think that poets have a different relationship with small journals than uh, prose writers do. And, I, and I'm sure some of you uh, write both prose and poetry and submit, you know, do the, do the whole game for both things. But uh, I would... Uh, I'd ask you to talk a little bit about that. Do you think there's a different relationship for poets? When you, 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 maybe I shouldn't say you gave us some of these questions in advance. I gave them the questions um, ahead of time. <laughs> I, I, I was just intrigued by that question. Um, and I don't, I, I don't, I mean, you can't be alive and not write nonfiction. So I write nonfiction functionally, but I've never submitted it for, I guess I, I don't submit it for publication in any serious way. So I don't, I don't know. I think that's really interesting, though. Um, I think I've had an experience a couple of times where uh, if a journal has a few editors, but they don't distinguish themselves as the poetry editor and the nonfiction editor, so you just you know you just hear from a, a particular editor who maybe is making some suggestions that you think they, they could be really maybe these are helpful suggestions, maybe they aren't, but and then you realize partway through all these suggestions that this person ha doesn't know anything about poetry <laughs> or something, so. I sometimes think editors look at poets maybe sometimes as a little bit of sort of the odd bird or something. I, I, I think I've experienced that a few times. Um, but I, I'm more curious to hear about folks who, from folks who really have tried seriously to publish other genres because that's not something I know. 
Yeah, I haven't, I haven't tried to publish many um, essays or, or short stories. Um, I get the sense that uh, for larger press journals, it's a different process for fiction writers, um, especially the, like, the really big ones. I think a lot of fiction writers have agents that submit on their behalf, and there's a whole, um, there's a whole process there. Um, but as a poet, it's kind of liberating, to me at least, um, that uh, you know, if you're a fiction writer, it's always, there's always a chance that you'll have like, a really big book like a, like a really best-selling novel, um, but that's just sort of not the case in, in poetry. You know, like you're not gonna you're not gonna sell a million copies with uh, with a book a book of poems. Uh, Alan um, Striptease, I don't know that poem. <laughs> yeah, it's gonna go. It's close. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think so. I think that um, you know, like the, the, there's a lot of uh, uh, journals that get millions of submissions that that seek only fiction that's that's agented. Um, but I think with poetry, it's um, especially, and I think with poetry and fiction for uh, for journals that are smaller, I think the process is probably really, really similar. Um, but I don't know firsthand. I have a few fiction writer friends, and they tell me that they're not as involved with the process. There, are, there is um, sort of like a like an agent, or there there is a bit more. There are a bit more people to go through. Um, but they also are more welcome, I think, even though there are, there's a large community of journals that we can tap into. Um, I've been told so many times that, you know, we really don't handle poetry here. We don't know what's going on mm-hmm. there. Um, please don't give it to us. <laughs> we, don't, we don't want it. Um, so um, I, I think... I think there's a, it's a, there's a there's real do-it-yourself ethic with poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, you you have to do your research. Um, you really have to be in touch with your communities and, and really be able to pinpoint yourself where to send your work, um, and then um, you know be prepared to wait. It's a waiting game. You know, three mm-hmm. months is a is a very a speedy response when you when you submit work. Um, you might wait six months. You might wait a year. So. Yeah, I think in general, like, um, you know, with fiction or prose writers, uh, there, seems, there seems to be, um, like, this whole kind of, like, rites of passage thing. And I say that because, you know, um, when I, in my program, like, a lot of the writers talked about when they got their first agent, and that was, you know, part of their rites of passage. Um, and, you know, I can remember thinking that, um, and just, this is just publishing in general, like even trying to publish, get a book published, um, you know, the poet has to do a lot of the grunt work, um, you know, whereas the agent has already done a good chunk of the work, like they know which markets to uh, promote your work to. And as a poet, you kind of have to figure that out on your own. So that's the only difference I've seen, so... So I'd like to open it up to the audience if anyone has any questions they'd like to ask uh, the the panel. Uh, if you guys don't mind, I'll, I'm going to take one of your mics um, and make you share two and two so that we can have the questions on the um, on the podcast. Yeah, well, it's about community, so. <laughs> Thank you very much for a good presentations. I'm thinking about the future, and I'm thinking about our young people. Uh, I know that um, we're in a growing global society. We want to make sure our young people know the three R's and all that. But how many of you mentor young people, whether it's in your um, 
owns beers and, you know, besides having workshops and all that. But do you actually go out and mentor or help with teachers or provide guidelines and all that for future poets who might be writers of tomorrow? Okay. Thank you. I have, I, have the glorious, I have the glorious job of being a high school English teacher, um, which I love. And uh, I, it's, a, it's a thrill to be able to mentor uh, young writers. Um, and I can sort of plug Alan King. Alan, uh, at my school down in D.C., was uh, one of our school's poetry series poets this past year. And I watched students listen to his poems and... It, I could just see them melt. I mean, I could see things happening in their faces, and they're saying stuff to me afterward, and they're asking me questions. And you know, of course, I had to give him his book, and I've given away his book more than I should. More than I should. Um, but I, I, I would be surprised. I bet all of us share that concern that, that you raise. Um, you know, to really sort of pass on the arts and to pass on a love and a passion for the arts. Um, I, to me, it's as meaningful as writing itself, I think. It's helping to, helping to pass it on and, and to help to grow young poets. Okay. Yeah, I, um, I'm not teaching now. Um, before I got my current job, I, w- I was teaching at um, the um, D.C. Creative Writing Workshop in Southeast and then also teaching at um, Duke Ellington School of the Arts. And I think, you know, the best thing that I could do in that role is just to expose them to a lot of things. So, um, you know, I expose them to, to slam poets, expose them to poets who may, whose work may be considered too quiet. But I think uh, my goal is to expose them to a whole range of what's out there and then help, you know, from what they've been exposed to, they can find their voice. So, you know... Yeah, I'm not, I'm not currently teaching either. Um, while I was an MFA student, I taught uh, I taught a high school creative writing class, and I loved it. Um, I would love to have that opportunity again. Um, I also coached a high school debate team for four years or so. Um, not not the arts, but still critical consciousness and critical thinking and research skills, and writing skills. Um, that's something I love doing, and I'm always looking for for opportunities to do it. So I'd absolutely share your concern too. Uh, for a time, I was teaching at the American Poetry Museum in D.C., mm-hmm. and um, it was um, it was eye-opening. And there's a, there can be a real disconnect between what we do and the students. Um, I was teaching fourth graders, so um, it was sixty percent babysitting and forty percent poetry. But they were they were very bright. They were very bright, and when you did give them, you know. Some, um, you know, page or stage poets or page or stage poems, they, they really grasped what the poem was really functioning as and they would write their, their small copies of it um, in their own voices. And I think it is very important to remember that um, regardless of, you know, the, the, the business or the, um, the, our career paths or whatever you want to call it, the, the machinery that we are in part of trying to get published and um, exposure that, you know, if our students, if our children, if our brothers and sisters cannot read, um, we're going to have a very, um, we're going to have a problem, um, not only with sharing our work, but with, you know, raising the next generation of poets. Other questions? Hi, I'm curious to hear what each of you thought about 
um, if there's a disconnect between your poet self and your other selves, whether it's personal or familial or professional selves, um, and if there is a difference, if you can say something about how you balance those different selves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I can speak to this. I'm a, uh, I'm a technical writer. That's my that's my profession. Um, and so uh, I mostly enjoy it, um, but it is a nine-to-five job where I have to do a kind of writing that's uh, uh, a lot less lively, uh, to put it mildly. Um, uh, and so, you know, I, yeah, I did have to learn. I, I continue to try to teach myself better ways of, uh, uh, you know, at 5 or 5.30 p.m. or whenever I leave the office, um, uh, getting out of that mode of writing and getting back into um, a more creative or just a completely different uh, uh, spectrum of writing, um, and I, you know, I think I think I've, I've done it for long enough that I've, that I've gotten better at it. Um, but yeah, I'm always working on that um, that divide. Um, so I spend a lot of time on Saturdays and Sundays for that reason, um, and then I just you know find an hour or two on weeknights. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's that's the first thing that came to mind for me when I heard your question. Yeah, <clears throat> excuse me. Yeah, I don't. Um, I don't. For me, I'm not sure if. Um, if I'm completely divided, like even though I wear like these other hats, so um, you know I function as a journalist, um, a communication specialist, poet, but I think you know all of those things inform you know the the different kinds of writing inform each other because um, you know as a as a journalist, you know there'll be especially if I'm doing a feature story, there are elements of poetry that I'll use to try to you know. Um, you know, live in the workups. So I may play with personification, like it may find its way in a feature story, or um, the research that I'm doing as a journalist. I would also be doing as a poet. So, especially if I'm doing persona poems, and my wife, <laughs> when I'm I drive her crazy when I'm going when I'm researching persona poems because I watch a bunch of YouTube clips of like cartoon characters trying to get their voice down, trying to get their speech pattern down. And so I think that's the journalistic side that does it. But um, I've gone, I've gone a, a while without writing poems. And um, even though I'm not writing, you know, when I'm living my everyday life, when I'm working, I'm in record mode. And I don't know what, you know, like the, the things that I experience, whether at work or, you know, whether in my free time, Somehow they find their way into my work, but I'm not sure at the time what I'm going to do with what I get. So, you know, I think, again, I'd, I'd like to think that I'm divided, but I think, you know, subconsciously there's this informing going on between the, um, the different hats. Um, I'm very lucky to work um, in a space. I work in media where my, uh, my boss is also a writer. So he encourages me to take an hour to swan off and to write and to read. Um, <laughs> he, he let me leave work early today to come here and he chapped Um So I don't have to, um, I don't have to switch modes and, and um, endure um, some of the, um, some of the, uh, Code switching is a really terrible word to use, but we're going to use it anyway. Um, I don't have to turn I don't have to turn the poet off, um, mm. but I think just remembering 
that even if you're not actively writing a poem, the, the entire sensual experience of life informs the writing. And to always be aware and to always observe, um, because you will be required to pull on um, a variety of different experiences. So, you know, if you shut that side of you down completely when you're at work, um, you're going to have a lot of trouble when it's time to write. Um, and really taking the weekend to go watch a film, um, to, to read a lot, to sleep. Sleeping really helps um, me write. So I take lots of naps. Um, but really just understanding how to navigate, how to sneak in poetry, and to sneak in creative creativity, even if that's not your job. Yeah, I would sort of echo Tafisha. Um, I'm living the dream. I mean, LeBron has nothing on my life. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. For the last couple of years, I, I've taught American Lit. I'm going to be continuing to teach American literature. So I'm talking to smart kids about poems all day long. How did I, how did I, how did I wake up to this life? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how, yeah, you know, um, my partner is a technical writer also, and uh, and does some creative nonfiction, and there, I think there is a real code switch, or there is a he has to sort of change language there. Um, I think that'd be hard to do. Uh, yeah, I think the idea is to, as, as folks have said, to sort of notice, and whether you're writing or not at the moment, or you know, you're all everything is of note. You know, I mean, everything is kind of getting it's landing someplace. Yeah, like Alan said, you never know what uh, you don't you don't get to decide in advance like what's going to be important. Exactly. Right. Right. Yeah. So we probably have time for one more question, if there's one. Okay, I'll ask one then. <laughs> um, just briefly, could you guys name uh, your favorite poets? I know this is a terrible question uh. to put you on the pot. <laughs> but it's a, it's a, it, I think it's a great, uh, I, I love lists, so mm-hmm. I, I, I am inviting you to end on a list. Okay, uh, Tim Siebel's, um, Cornelius Eady, Sherman Alexi, Martina Spada, um, Lucille Clifton. Um, and it's funny because you have like your whole list, and then when you get on the spot, yeah. like you're like just kind of reaching like, for how it. Do I, how do I not say that? <laughs> Yes, I'm drawing a blank. <laughs> That's a good list. Oh, thanks. It's official to go ahead. Um, Lucille Clifton, naturally. Um, Camille Dungy, Jericho mm. Brown. Um, Lloyd Holland is not necessarily write poetry, but it is very poetic. Um, She wrote the new black Eshop. Um, Toy Derrick meeting a lot of her right now. Um, Nario Wahid, um, Marshall and Shire, um, reading my Sharon Olds, um, and Pablo Neruda. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Kind of go wrong. <laughs> uh, well, lots of the lots of the folks that they've said. Uh, um, but to reach back, I, I mean, I, I think I was first really captured by the, the Irish poet Yeats, William Yeats. Uh, I, 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 it's hard to imagine being alive without Yeats. Um, Martina Spada's work has had a lot of influence on me. Jericho Brown, I, I, 
he needs to get that second book out so I don't have to stop reading that same damn book every <laughs> over and over. Um, but his work means a lot to me, as does Mark Doty's. Um, maybe some of it's the American lit, but the sort of endless mind of Emily Dickinson, I, she's like the great psychologist or something. Talk about being in therapy. Somebody talk about being in therapy. Yeah. Every time I read her poems, I feel like I'm a little more together or something. Well, I've always loved, um, uh, since I was in high school, Wallace Stevens, William Carlos Williams. Um, I continually read Tom Gunn and Frank O'Hara over and over and over again. Robert Hayden, uh, Cesar Vallejo, um, Wendell Brooks. Mm-hmm. Um, Well, thank you so much, poets. It was really great to hear from you. Um, Let's just give another round of applause to our panel. And and you guys have been a really wonderful audience. Um, The Enoch Pratt just wants to say a quick word about um, some upcoming events, so I'm going to invite them to to share a word. And then please feel free to talk to the poets, to buy some copies of A Little Protection Review, um, and, and buy copies of the poets' books as well. I just wanted to say really quickly that um, the Pratt, um, we do have an email list. Um, there are lists in the back of the room. If you sign up, you can be notified about the many great poetry programs that we have coming up. We have some really exciting things in the fall. Um, and also, there are some questionnaires, surveys on that back table. And if you could just take one minute and tell us um, your, how you felt about tonight's program, that would be really helpful to us. But also I wanted to say thank you so much to the Little Patuxent Review and Stephen and especially these wonderful poets. It's been a really great program and the library is grateful. So thank thanks. You.